We're continuing our series through some psalms this summer, as we do every summer. And I have the least delightful psalm you will ever hear to bring to you this morning in Psalm 88. And I chose it this morning deliberately because I want to help us learn how to process all of our emotions, especially even our sadnesses. So would you turn with me to Psalm chapter 88? It's going to sound pretty dark and depressing, but bear with me. The psalmist still has confidence in God that I hope to pass on to you as well. Psalm chapter 88. It's a song. A psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to Mahalath Leonoth, a maskil of Haman the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles. And my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves." Selah, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O oh Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death my, from my youth up. I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's lay the heaviness of this psalm and our own hearts before him in prayer. God, these are your inspired words meant to guide us with wisdom on what to do with our sadness. I pray that as we bear this heavy burden this morning, it would not be that we would bear it alone but that your spirit would mightily be present to bear it with us and point us to Christ who bore it on the cross for us. That one day, that one day we may be released from these burdens. Give us confidence now 
that you are good, even in our sorrows, that you have made promises, even when we can't see them unfolding, that there is a future that awaits us, even if we can't see it yet. God, strengthen us through this word by the power of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. What do you say to someone who is suffering? Maybe a better question would be to ask, what do you not say? Through my own experiences of suffering, I've learned some helpful things to say and some really unhelpful things not to say simply by being on the receiving end of some very encouraging words and also some very not helpful statements. So let me share a couple. When our little tiny boy was about this big, Ethan, no, Lucas, when he died earlier this year, right around the one-year anniversary of Ethan's death, we were quite troubled, obviously, in our souls, bearing the weight of death so heavily in such a short amount of time. Yet we determined in our weakness to seek out spirit f- comfort in spirit-filled works among the saints that you would bring to us by God's word. And as we gather to sing together, you're singing of God's faithfulness, reminding us of his goodness. And that gave us freedom to express our sorrows fully. But one person was a little concerned that maybe our sorrow might be out of balance. Perhaps we focus too much on the brokenness of this world. Maybe we were a little too eager for the next life to come and weren't giving enough attention to all the good things that we can experience in this life. And so this person confronted me in my sorrow and told me that they don't really like to be around me because I have no hope and joy. The last words this person spoke to me were, you should consider getting help for your depression. As hurtful as that was, I processed that for a while with the help of many of you. And I really just came to a place of pitying this person. I didn't really understand the depth of pain that people can carry around with them in this life. They were so uncomfortable with someone just being sad. We're often uncomfortable with sad stories. We want happy endings. That's right. It's a good impulse to want a happy ending. But when someone tells us their struggles, we feel so uncomfortable with that, that we quickly want to help them feel better. We try to offer encouragement. We suggest a fix. We look for the silver lining. And if we can't come up with any of those things, we just slowly walk away. Shortly after Ethan died, someone told us, well, at least you still have your five other kids. That was not helpful. I know they were trying to turn the sadness of the moment towards a positive direction, but those words just diminish the value of our own son by trying to direct our attention away from him because they couldn't bear to see the sadness of the circumstances. I don't tell you, friends, these things because I think you're terrible encouragers and I want you to get better. You've all been wonderful, and I appreciate you greatly. 
Today, from this psalm, I want to help you become more comfortable with sadness. I want you to know that sadness is okay, because this world is still very much cursed. It's okay. It's even good to be sad sometimes, maybe even for a long time. And I want you just to be present with people in their sadness so they don't have to feel alone or ashamed by their feelings as they bear the weight of the curse's burdens. Today we're looking at this psalm, chapter 88. It's a very challenging psalm. It's the only psalm in all 150 psalms, the only one that doesn't express confidence in the future, express some promise of God that he's clinging to. There's hope, but it's very subtle. It's dark. It almost kind of feels like it's wrong that it's in the Bible. It's so raw with its emotions, even accusations toward God. And the whole point of this psalm is to encourage you to be honest, even with your negative emotions. Don't hide them, but don't be careless with them either. Direct them right at the only one who can do something with them. And so our main idea today is to persist in bringing your griefs to God. Persist in bringing your griefs to God. The outline of this psalm is kind of difficult to determine. It it's, doesn't have quite a clear structure as so many others do. Many commentators have tried to propose different outlines and none of them agree with one another, which just leaves me going, I think that's right. Because when you're in your grief, when you're in sorrow, nothing makes sense. Nothing feels like it has any order. It's all chaotic. But there are some recurring themes here that I want to address. There's kind of two halves of the psalm, and it repeats the same thing in both halves. So I want to look at those themes today. First, I want to establish the foundation of godly grief looking at what the guiding principle is through this whole psalm. The psalmist is about to say some really hard things. But before he does, he establishes his feet firmly on truth in order to stay on that solid ground throughout the wild expression of his emotion. Second, we explore then his feelings of godly grief. These are truly the types of things people feel when tragedy or difficulty strikes and it sticks with them a long time. Maybe the rest of their lives. It sounds really hard, but these are realities in this cursed world. This psalm will help us all feel more comfortable expressing and just listening to these kinds of emotions. And finally, we must turn our attention to the proper focus of godly grief. We need to recognize a core truth about God, who he is, if you are going to be able to stay faithful and bring your grief properly to him. So let's begin together with this foundation of godly grief. I'm just going to read again verses 1 and 2 to set us up for it. He says, O Lord... God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. So before this psalmist expresses his honest heart 
before God. He's going to lay some ground rules, some guiding principles to make sure he doesn't drift away from God himself in this wrestle. It's kind of a way of saying up front, now just to warn you everybody, as I say these things, it's going to sound like I don't really trust God. Uh, this, these things right here are my guiding beliefs that are going to be the anchor to my soul as the wind and waves just crash against my life. This kind of truth is vital. And God does invite us to be honest with our emotional expressions, but not careless. We must guide our emotions with truth. The Psalms, all of them, show us how to deal with our emotions. They tell us godly ways to deal with joy and delight, pain and sorrow, confusion and anxiety. And this Psalm in particular, in all of its grief, isn't just the ramblings of some isolated, wandering nomad who desperately needs a girlfriend. The title of this psalm tells us it's written by Haman the Ezraite. He's Ethan's brother. He was one of the wisest men in Israel. When Solomon came along, Solomon's wisdom was compared to him. Throughout the Old Testament, he's often referred to as kind of a musical prophet. His job was to stand before the whole congregation, the whole gathering of the nation of Israel, and lead them all to bring their whole selves to God, everything about them. Come to God and seek him in a righteous way. So this psalm is showing us how to wisely and God, in a godly way deal with deep depression gut-wrenching sorrow, gripping grief, lonely abandonment. It invites the brokenhearted to come near and make it all known to God. Three times in this psalm, Haman says he's crying out in prayer in verses 1 and 2 and 9 and 13. And in these short cries, we see this foundation of godly grief. First, we see in each of these verses, Haman uses the personal name of God, Yahweh. It's in all caps, Lord, in your Bible. This is the covenant relational name with God. He says, I want you to know who I am, and who I am starts with my name. God, the word God, is the word you use when you just speak of God as the great being, the transcendent creator of all things. But that's not really inviting you to be close to him. Yahweh is the name you say when you remember all that God has ever done for his people. How he has rescued his people, taken care of them, promised to be near them. Yahweh is the God who defeated the Egyptians, who slayed the Philistines who defended his people against the Assyrians. Yahweh is the one who comforted and fed the poor widow all alone in Israel. He blessed the abused servant of Abraham, Hagar, when she was cast out. He gave Ruth food and a future through, a, through Boaz. This psalm starts with all the hopes and all the promises that come with knowing that God. He's the God of my salvation. He 
He's not just the God of other people's salvation that I wish I could have. He's my God. He knows me and listens to me. What's the point of praying if God doesn't listen? And so he asks God, please hear my heart through all of this pain. God may not be answering right away, but the psalmist will not stop praying. Prayer to Yahweh is persistent. It does not give up. He knows the answer might not come for a while because he knows the Israelites cried out to God in, in Egypt for 400 years in slavery. But salvation did come. So Haman says he will pray day and night, every day. Right away in the morning when he wakes up and still feels like he's in pain, he prays. Anytime he gets the opportunity, he brings all of this emotion to God. And it's not just a private experience. He's not retreating into the wilderness, going into his prayer closet to be alone with God. The whole point of this psalm is to sing it with other people. The place you go to meet with God is at the temple. This is a congregational song that Haman wrote to help people express their grief, their despair in the right way, in the right place. The godly way to bring your grief to God is singing with God's people. In the middle of his pain, this man makes the journey from his home, climbs the mountain to the temple to be surrounded by God's people, to spread his arms up, stretch his arms up, like to reach up to God and pull his ear down and cry out, are you going to listen to me? Please, God. And he listens for the voices of the saints, giving God's answer of his faithfulness. This is the true expression of faith. True faithfulness can be sad, but it doesn't need to quit, but it cannot quit seeking God. It does not quit seeking God. It persists in bringing its grief to God, knowing that he is a personal God, a God of salvation who has promised to redeem his people on the foundation of his own holy name. This is a critical foundation to have because when you express all of these depths of human emotion, if you are not tethered to that truth, it, you can easily wander off into all kinds of destructive ideas and behaviors to cover up the pain. But I do want to emphasize this morning that sadness is allowed in faith. What my friend so-called friend said to me that day was wrong. It's okay to be sad. Faithfulness includes frankness in godly grief. If you're tethered to the truth of God's word, his character, all of his promises that are shared among the gathered saints, you're not only permitted to be sad, you are encouraged to bring all of those emotions so let's read verses 3 and 5 just to get another sample of this frankness of godly grief. He says, For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. 
like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, they are cut off from your hand. I remember a few years ago, before we lost children, after going through Molly's severe health challenges, telling a friend how just exhausted I was from all this struggling, all of this pain. I just said, I got no hope left in this world. I really just want to go be with Jesus. I can't wait until that new creation breaks in and takes over. I'm done with this life. I'm not suicidal, but it's just nothing for me here. And her response to me was, I think people just say that because they want to escape the responsibility that we are called to in this world. People are dying and going to hell, and we need to get over our emotions and get to work. Thanks. Thanks. That's, that's a new one. Remember what I said about people feeling really uncomfortable with sadness? We think it's somehow more righteous to suppress our sorrows and act as if they don't exist. We think that what is important is not what we feel, but just what we do. And people like to say things like, love is not a feeling, but an action. You hear that a lot in marriage counseling. I think that's wrong. Love is a feeling that leads to actions, just like sadness is a feeling that leads to an action which this psalmist tells us the action should be persistence in prayer to God. This is what Psalm 88 is showing us how to do. Don't hold back your emotions. Bring them all fully and persistently to God. Faith is not suppressing your feelings to pursue some stoic obedience. I am unfazed by your hurtful comments. No, I cried a lot when I hear things like that. I cry in front of you guys when I preach, thinking about those things. Many people who are struggling in this life feel this intense guilt that they're not being faithful. Those who are anxious and depressed wonder, if only I had a stronger faith, then I wouldn't feel this way anymore. Psalm 88 says otherwise. Faith is not determined by your emotions, by what, but by what you do with them. It's okay to have them, but bring them to God. Oftentimes, I've found that it's those who fully express their emotions who are the ones who are able to draw nearer to God. They more abundantly experience His presence. Faith holds on to God as the rawness of the emotions just rage and come flying out. Faith is the is an expression of whom you trust to handle all of those wild emotions. One commentator says, true faith is not an apathetic acceptance of whatever comes to pass. Apathetic, meaning without care, without emotion. True faith, he says, lies in wrestling with the Lord in prayer. You can be faithful and sad at the same time. Just be frank honest, vulnerable with God. He can handle it. He knows what you're feeling anyway. Look at how, this, how raw this worship leader is in his music at the temple. 
And the strong theme of these three verses, and the whole psalm really, is death. He feels like he's on the verge of death. His life draws near to Sheol, meaning the grave. It's like, you've heard the phrase, he's got one foot in the grave. It's like he's already half dead, or mostly dead. We can joke when we're sad too. It's like he's just got one breath left. He can take one more inhale to let out one more cry of plea for mercy from God. But he might as well be dead already. He feels in verse 5 like a walking corpse roaming among the dead. He compares himself to an unknown soldier, someone killed and thrown into a, a, a mass grave with a bunch of other unknown soldiers. He's nobody. It's like Ezekiel's valley of dry bones. There's no life, no movement, no purpose to himself. In other verses, he feels lonely, abandoned by his family and friends who have been terrible comforters. I've got a buddy. He feels trapped in darkness, lost in a sea of terrors. He just wants to wake up from this terrible nightmare. Every day he wakes up, he realizes he's, he's still in the nightmare. Verse 15 says he's felt like this since he was young. Maybe he had a sickness or he was abandoned from the time he was young. Or it could just be that this burden has been so heavy for so long he can't see anything else. When you're in heavy grief, it clouds every other experience. It's hard to see goodness everywhere. It casts a shadow over everything. You look back on all of your memories and all you can see is the pain, the struggle. When you're surrounded by people, you still feel alone. Daily labor feels like slavery. and Your daily bread tastes like poison. But again... He brings his complaints directly to God in verse 10. He's holding two things in his hand in this series of questions. On the one hand, he knows God is good and he promises salvation. On the other hand, he can't escape the reality of his pain. He feels like he's on the verge of death. Soon he could pass into the grave. So he holds these two things in his hands and says, lifts them to God. How do these things fit together? If I am dead, I cannot praise you. If I am dead, it will look to the world like you don't care for your people. If I am dead, you can't show off your power in my life. Do something, God, before I run out of breath. This is faithful expression of feelings alongside the knowledge of God's truth. It's so important to learn and embrace these truths before the grief comes to you. The trials come your way. You want these solid truths to stick in your mind while your heart is trying to pull you away into all kinds of false comforts. You're, you're going to have lots of why questions and what now questions. And this psalm tells us you might not get answers to those questions other than keep seeking after God. This, is, this focus on God himself is the key to the entire prayer. God is the focus of godly grief. You must settle your heart today on the reality of God's sovereignty over all things, even your troubles. 
Otherwise, your faith will never survive when the trial comes. Look at how the psalmist declares God's sovereignty over tragedy. In verses 6 to 8, we'll just do those three. You, God, you have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. Notice what Haman says about where these difficulties have come from. We don't really know what exactly is going on, what his suffering is, what's causing it, which I think is a really helpful device in the psalm to invite you, whatever yours are, to bring them here, and he gives you language to express your sorrow in whatever grief you have. But he does recognize that whatever the circumstances, they are ultimately from the hand of God. No matter how you try to solve this philosophical problem of evil, you can't escape the reality, the fact that God planned it all and it's all unfolding according to his will. You might feel like your friends have abandoned you or the system is unjust, your neighbors are a huge problem, your chronic illness is unfair, your job is demoralizing, your boss is just a jerk. Whatever it is, you must come to the place where you realize that all of it is ultimately from the hand of God. And then it's when you're there that you realize only God has the power to fix the problem. The problem of evil is God's problem, not ours. In many ways, we don't even need to ask why even though we want to, or, or what now? Because God is the answer to the why and the what now. He will solve the problem. If you think the government is the problem, then you're going to put all your energy into solving, bringing government solutions. If you think money is the problem, you're going to be doing a bunch of work to try to get more money or to spend less money. If you think your health is the problem, you're going to give all your hope to the medical solutions. If you think people are the problem, you'll just run away from them when it gets difficult. But if you recognize that God is the ultimate source of all your trouble, then you have nowhere else to go but straight to him. It might seem a little shocking to see inspired scripture blaming God for these problems. Verses 16 to 18 repeat those same accusations that God is responsible for all these calamities. And it might make you wonder, are, is this sinful? I get it's in the Bible, but is this okay to talk this way to God? Well, it could be sinful if you're asking these questions and making these statements with an attitude of self-righteousness that God is being unjust, that you deserve better, and he is wrong to do this to you. Who are you? O clay to speak to the potter. So that's not what Haman is doing here. Remember, this is one of the wisest men in history showing us how to be faithful with our emotions before God. He is very direct in his speech, certainly. But he's simply making the case of what he knows to be true and what he is experiencing don't seem to be lining up. 
he has this foundation of trust in God in place. So he knows the problem is not with God, but with his perception of reality. So making these accusations against God is not a way of condemning God, but acknowledging, I can't find any way to fix this problem. No man can solve the world's problems. God alone can take them away. And that's where this psalmist is at. All he knows is he feels like a dead man. His life is spiraling out of control. There's nothing he can do to fix it. His companions are worthless. They're like Job's friends. Nothing helpful to say. The government can't help. The neighbors can't help. His family's left him. There's only one place to go, straight to God. It's like the parable of the persistent widow who finally got what she asked for from the judge or the woman with the the flow of blood for 12 years. 12 years, and she finally found her Lord to get her healing. The psalmist will not give up asking until he finally hears of God's rescue. With that small faith, he clings to God, but the psalm still ends in darkness. Without resolve, without a hint of joyful praise, the man is still waiting for his healing. And it leaves us with him longing for salvation, wondering what does this salvation look like? In our pain, we think salvation should just look like removing our burden, taking away the enemy, healing our sickness, getting justice for our oppressor, or just being more happy all the time. But God doesn't always do that. Sometimes, like Paul, he says, You're going to keep that thorn in the flesh so that in your weakness, he will show that his strength is sufficient to hold you fast. In his strength, he'll show you a much more amazing salvation than you could ever come up with on your own. Yes, God does promise to wipe away those tears, those sorrows. But why is he doing that? He does it to draw us near to himself through Christ. Jesus is what this psalm is really all about. This psalm, this psalm is Christ's own song. It's all about him. The first verse says his name in it. Did you know that the name Jesus in Hebrew literally is Yahweh is salvation? There he is right there in the first verse. Jesus sang this psalm. He was a man of sorrows showing us how we can find God in our sorrows. We often think of Jesus as this happy guy. There's one Jesus film. Is it? I can't remember. Maybe it's the Matthew one. The guy's smiling all the time. It's really awkward. It doesn't seem genuine. Jesus was known for carrying heavy burdens. When his friend Lazarus died in John 11, he knew he was going to raise him from the dead, but he stopped. And John says simply, Jesus wept. He just sat down with Mary and Martha and cried and cried and cried. He experienced all kinds of trials. He had no home. He had a lack of food. He constantly faced attacks from his enemies. In his hour of great distress, his friends all abandoned him. 
as he hung on the cross, darkness covered the land. He even cried out himself, just like this psalm, feelings of abandonment by God himself, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you have these feelings, you can know that Christ is with you. This is why Jesus came to enter the sorrow with you, to bear on the cross the full burden of the curse so you could one day be released from it to find God in your sorrow. He didn't just come to sit with you in your sorrow. He didn't come just to cry with Mary and Martha, but to raise Lazarus. And he too was raised from the dead in order that we could be assured that we will be raised out of our despair one day. Jesus is the salvation this psalm longs for so that you can be free from your sorrows, maybe not now, but one day death will be no more. There will be no more tears, no more lamentation, no more sickness. It may take a hundred more years to finally attain that salvation, but it is coming. And it's coming in a way that even Haman didn't realize when he asked, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? He thought the obvious answer was no. God turned the tables on him and says, no, the salvation I'm bringing, the answer is yes. In Christ, God does wonders for the dead. In Christ, God will raise you up to praise him. If you are sorrowful today, he's giving you his spirit to cling to that hope. Even if death overtakes you, God has not failed. He will raise you up to praise him again. He will prove his faithfulness in your resurrection. I want you to know today that it is okay to be sad as long as you cling to that hope. This psalm is for you. God made you with all of your emotions, the negative ones too. And they are to ex express the full human experience to lead you to hope in your resurrection in Christ. Your season of sadness may last a while, God may keep you there for a while longer just to keep you persisting in bringing your grief to him. Don't let anyone tell you that you simply need to cheer up and get some counseling. Find some better friends. But don't give up coming to God in your grief. Where else can we go? Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. Surround yourself with people who will help you persist in bringing your griefs to God. And if that's not you today, you're not in the valley of sorrows, then find someone who is. I want to encourage you to be comfortable with sadness. Learn to weep with those who weep. Learn to listen and be present with those who are grieving. Don't act on that immediate impulse to try to fix it or soften it or find the silver lining. Someone, sure, someone might be completely wrong in their assessment of the situation in their sadness, but correcting them in that moment will not accomplish anything. When a person is, is letting their emotions just run full throttle, they're not thinking clearly anyway. You can't reason someone to the truth when they are acting out of emotion, but you can weep with them. 
You can give them an ear, an outlet to relieve the pressure and help them persist to give words to their sorrows and bring their griefs to God with them. Let's let let's Redemption City Church be a church, be a people who enter into darkness with one another and feel the weight of sorrow together and put words to those emotions in prayer for one another when someone else's voice is too weak. Use this psalm to pray with someone to help them persist in bringing their griefs to God. Let's pray. God, I do wonder who in here has those sorrows. I pray that they wouldn't rush out the door this morning fearful that they might be exposed for their sorrow, but they would find someone and share the sorrows and cry together and just hold a hug together so that they can feel your nearness in the arms of someone else's embrace. God, I pray that these next songs would encourage us us to keep looking to Christ, confident that he is the God of salvation. He is the one who has the name above every names. He is Jesus, Yahweh, our salvation. Amen.